0: Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to, well, you know, 2 Samuel. Except we're going to be at 2 Samuel 24 this morning. We're actually going to read um, the last two verses of 2 Samuel 24, but that does not mean we're ending the series much to, I'm sure, many's chagrin. You know, I talked about this in staff meeting this week. I know, I know so many of you, like me, sometimes are just like, let's just go to another book. I get it. I totally get it. But what have I said time and time again? You know, there really is nothing new in God's Word, right? You know that if we were in Ephesians or we went to a different book in a different week, the principles would still be the same because God's Word is unified. It's one story with one central message, and that is Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. So, bear with me, though we are getting close to being done, we're not there yet. There is still much more for us to hear from this series. We're actually going to be taking up two chapters today, chapter 21 and chapter 5, but again, reading the last two verses of 24, and then we will jump in. The king said to Arona. No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, and the flower fades the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we do thank You for bringing us here this morning to hear the word of Christ. Lord, as we've already read, prayed, and sung, we now ask that You would help us hear the word of Christ preached. Lord, I ask for Your help to preach with boldness, empowered by Your Spirit, I pray for help for your people to hear with ears empowered by your Spirit. That the Word of Christ might dwell with us and in us richly today. I ask if there are any here who do not yet know you through your Son, that Christ would be magnified in their sight, that they would be brought to repentance and faith in Him and enter into this most beloved family. Father, in all these things, would you be glorified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. Last week, we considered together the movement from feast to famine. Okay? Section 4, as we saw, there's four big parts in 2 Samuel, then an epilogue. Section 4, that big chunk from 2 Samuel 9 to 20, it began with the lame and orphaned Mephibosheth being adopted by David, treated like a son brought to the king's table. And then this final section, the epilogue, begins with famine and ends with plague. So as we consider these chapters as one literary unit, it's worth noting that they're structured as what we call a chiasm. I'm going to ask you to turn on hermeneutics and not to yawn just quite yet, but... If you were there Wednesday night for our Daniel study, you'll notice that this is a literary structure. It may be new, but it's not complicated. It's a device used in literature that aids and helps in memory, but often is used to bring attention to a certain specific point. The structures can be various. It can go A, B, A with B being the main point or A, B, C, B, A with C being the main point or as we have today, A, B, C, 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 B, A. Right? Back to the main point. Something like that. But it it works in ...and works back out as a poetic device. And here you see actually a very good example of a chiasm. It's there on the screen here for us this morning. In chapter 21, we start by seeing the sin of Saul, the consequence of that sin in a famine. We see the sacrifice of seven sons and the removal of that curse, the famine. So I'm going to call that salvation... We see the same thing in chapter 24 in that story. Sin, consequence, sacrifice, and ultimately salvation. Now you move inwards a little bit from chapter 21, 15 to 21, 25. You have the list of David's mighty men. And that's coupled with the other side, starting in chapter 23, verse 8, with another list of David's mighty men and their deeds. And what do you have? Smack dab in the middle there. And see, you have David's song. And David's last words. See the structure? Now, why in the world do you need to know that? Isn't that what you do at your study time and not important for us? No, the reason I'm bringing that to our attention is because this is what we're going to do. We're going to take up chapter 21 and 24, overlaying them, considering them together to see the flow of both chapters that communicate a similar message in order to arrive at the big idea that's actually found in both. We will actually be doing the same thing the next two weeks. We'll, we'll take David and his mighty men next week, and then we'll take David's song and his last words, and hopefully, Lord willing, unless he returns, we'll close 2 Samuel with that. So last week we moved from feast to famine. This week we're going to move from sin to salvation. Next week we're going to take up what I would refer to as sword and spear, and then in two weeks we'll take up the middle section And look at the king and his glory. So, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, don't we? You ready for this? Let's do it. All right. Let's jump in. Both passages begin with sin. In chapter 21, the sin is described. You can look at chapter 21, verse 1, and you see the sin described as this Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. We looked at that last week, how Saul broke a covenant uh, that Israel made with the Gibeonites in the name of the Lord, and therefore they were guilty before the Lord, before whom they had promised to safeguard or keep safe the Gibeonites. That's the sin in chapter 21. And In chapter 24, the sin is not explicitly stated to us. Instead, in verse 1, we read, again, "...the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel." I kind of get the feeling that the narrator of Second Samuel just got tired of talking about how Israel had sinned over and over again, and kind of was just like, "Okay, guys, it happened again. They sinned." But therefore, it's a good and necessary inference that Israel had sinned against the Lord. The Lord's anger is not kindled against Israel for no reason. We've we've read twenty-three chapters up to that point. We know that's the case. Israel had sinned against the Lord, and therefore His anger was kindled against them. But their sins not recorded. So both passages, we have sin next. Since we're Baptists, in consequence, it doesn't start with an S. We're going to change this to sentence. In both passages, we also see the sentence or the punishment for that sin. In chapter twenty-one, we considered again last week at some length. There was three years of famine, year after year. That was the sentence for the sin. In chapter twenty-four, the punishment's actually a little bit more complicated. The punishment is a census that creates the occasion for a plague. The plague in chapter 24 is not because the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, not directly anyway. The pestilence or plague is because of David's census that comes because the Lord incited David to take a census in order to punish Israel. Did you hear what I just said? Because if you're paying attention, that might actually blow your mind. Let me say it again in case you weren't. The anger of the Lord being kindled against Israel is not the direct cause for the plague we see in chapter 24. The census is. But if you trace David's census back, why does it happen? It happens because according to chapter 24 verse 1, the Lord says he moved David against them to say go number Israel and Judah So get this the Lord incites David David takes a census and David's heart strikes him because he sinned against the Lord and the Lord brings judgment upon David and Israel Here's a question for you Do you have a box for that in your theology Do you have a do you have a hook for that do you have a a place to hang this particular concrete event where the Lord incites David saying, go number Israel and Judah. David numbers Israel and Judah, and then Israel is punished for the census that David conducts. You tracking? (laughs) See, if you read something like this, it's important that this actually fits into your conception of God, because if it doesn't, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do one of two things. You're either just going to ignore it. Which some of us may do, just say, that's strange, I don't get it, let's move on. Or you're going to twist it to fit your conception of God. In church family, neither of those are viable options. Instead, this actually should shape our conception of God. Does that make sense? Listen, our conception of God has to make room for this. So you're waiting for me to make this a little bit better for you. A little bit more palpable, I know. But before I do that, let me make it a little worse. Can I? Turn to 1 Chronicles, or look up at the screen. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. This is the very same event that the author is recording in the book of Chronicles. But here's how the author of Chronicles records it. You're reading that? You're reading it already, aren't you? Now Satan stood up against Israel... And moved David to number Israel. Do you hear that? The author of Chronicles said Satan incited Israel. The author of 2 Samuel recorded that who incited Israel? God. So according to the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God, the Lord incited David and Satan incited David. Where do you hang that? Is your hook able to hold that? I'm going to give you a hook if you don't already have it. Here's the hook, if I can put it in my words. You ready for the hook? It's this. God is sovereign over good and evil. I'll say it again. God is sovereign over good and evil. The Bible clearly teaches this everywhere... Not just in 2 Samuel, it teaches it all over the place. But as we talked about, in fact, we had, ai a, think, a Sunday school lesson not too long ago where we had a yes or no question and the answer made like 10 more questions. I feel like this is a question that maybe needs a little bit more answers, doesn't it? Otherwise, y'all might leave the church. All right. The Bible teaches this everywhere, but there's a few things we need to understand before we understand this better. First is this. We need to remember this. God is perfect. That's the first thing we need to remember. If we're going to understand this huge theological hook, we have to have that God is sovereign over good and evil. We've got to remember that God is perfect. And I would actually argue that this is the starting place. In other words, as we're allowing our hook to be reshaped and fashioned, our theological box to be shaped and fashioned, not by our idea of God, but by the revelation of his word that tells us about this God, right? As we're allowing that to happen, um, what we don't do is in order to fit what the Bible reveals about who the Lord is, we don't just straight jettison something that we already know the Bible says clearly, especially in its clearer places. The Scriptures themselves are the only infallible interpreter of Scripture ever. So when the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that the Lord, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, that's a clear statement, isn't it? It's a proposition. We don't take that, then come to a text like this and for a moment think, well, maybe all His ways aren't justice. This, however we interpret it, must fit with that. All of His ways are perfect, and all of His ways are just. So God is perfect. Second, God's sovereignty over good and evil is thoroughly biblical. God's sovereignty over good and evil, it is thoroughly biblical. And it begins in Genesis chapter 1. When the only true and living God creates all things for His own glory, there is no evil present in that act, and yet our understanding of God's sovereignty starts there in the beginning. God, everything apart from God, is derivative of Him. Everything apart from God is created by Him. He alone is the only immutable, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent being that exists. He is completely separate. He's the only one who is above all, over all, and in all. He's the one who doesn't just know the beginning from the end, but actually declares the end from the beginning. He speaks it in such a way that it will come to pass. He is therefore the first cause of all things. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says this well in chapter 3, paragraph 1 of God's decrees. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Which things? All things whatsoever comes to pass. If it comes to pass, he's decreed it. Like, like, is that your God? Because <laughs> it's the God of the Scriptures. That's the hook. If it's not, you actually have a less than biblical understanding of who God is. God is who He is. He reveals to us who He is, and we receive His revelation and believe it. Amen. The confession goes on to say this. Yet so, as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor Hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. We just don't speak like this anymore. But that's really good stuff. Like it might take us a couple of weeks to actually unpack what it actually says figure out what they're talking about, but that is spot on. Listen, it says, God has decreed all things, yet he has done so in a way that actually establishes liberty. It doesn't destroy it. It establishes the basis of human contingency. It doesn't remove it. It creates the only possible context for real human responsibility. It doesn't deny it. Now, we might not fully understand that, and yet we can each and every one of us say, amen, hallelujah, it's true. So This is just good theology. This is the proper hook. And and here's the reality. The third thing I'm going to give you is actually what I think our struggle is in all of this. Here's our struggle. Our struggle with having the proper hook is we tend to think in terms of zero sum. What in the world do I mean by that? We tend to think in terms of zero sum. That's the third thing I want us to see here. Follow me here. Here's what we mean by terms of zero sum. We, we think that, that if God's sovereignty is working at 70%, then that means my human responsibility or free will, whatever you want to call it, is working at 30%. If, if he's 10% sovereign, then I'm 90% responsible. But in that, we forget that, that God is completely other ontologically other, like he sovereignly works 100% of the time, if you can apply even a percentage, and yet you and I are 100% responsible that make real significant choices and our futures are contingent upon those choices in real viable ways. Boom. Got it? If, I, if, if this was actually a physical microphone, I would have dropped it at that point, but I'd this is equipment's expensive, so I can't. All right, listen, all I'm trying to say by this is you have to toss out the unbiblical view that what we're talking about here is a zero sum game. It's not. God's working in no way inhibits or impinges upon yours, they're two different planes. Good theology, or the proper hook, believes that God has revealed himself without feeling compelled to be able to fully comprehend the truth that's been revealed. That's hard for us, especially as Americans. Knowing that God decreed all things and has worked all things according to the counts of his own will, as the Bible fully teaches, yet does not author evil, nor does violence to the will of man, nor takes away his liberty or contingency. Listen, that may be difficult to wrap our heads around, but it's true. And and that's the question. Is it true? How do we know if if it's true or not? Does the word of God reveal it to be? So our hook must be shaped and fashioned by the Word and not the limits of our own understanding of it. And let me add one more piece to the puzzle and then we need to move on. I know, this is not even the sermon yet, so but we got to do this. Here's the one more piece of the puzzle. I, I believe the, the Lord also works what I'm going to call asymmetrically. Asymmetrically. I got that from D.A. Carson who explains this very well in his book, How long, O Lord? If you haven't read that and you want a a good and proper theology on suffering, D.A. Carson's How Long, Long, O Lord? is chef's kiss right there. Um, The Lord works asymmetrically. He says this in his book. He says it must be the case that God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his own sovereignty. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to the secondary agents, the secondary causes. It is always chargeable to us, the secondary agents or causes. Again, just think think the end of Genesis, right? Joseph's declaration to his brothers, what did he say in Genesis 50 verse 20? When they come seeking his forgiveness, he says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. D.A. Carson goes on to say this, he says, On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him. And only, derivatively, to secondary agents. Now, you know why that bothers us a little? It only bothers us because you and I are marred by sin. (laughs) Like, like in glory, we're going to celebrate that truth. That only bothers us because there's still just a tinge of pride that is tainting every single part. But that's why the author of Samuel can write that the Lord incited him... ...and the author of Chronicles can write Satan incited him... And both statements can be true. In Samuel, the first cause is given. And in Chronicles, the second cause is given. The Lord intends it for good and Satan intends it for evil, so the Scriptures say. Alright, more can be said. But I think that will suffice for enough dinner conversation afterwards, right? We're supposed to do that, by the way. If you didn't know... This is not like some sort of show where you come and watch and go home and then write a Yelp review, right? This is, this is community where we go home and we ponder and wrestle and struggle together with the truths of Scripture. And so let me encourage you to do that. We've seen sin. We saw the sentence for sin. We move on now to see a sacrifice. I would even argue the necessity of sacrifice for sin is what we see. In chapter 21, it's not a sacrifice in the normal biblical use of that term. So if I wasn't striving for alliteration here, I might have used the term death. But I do think that sacrifice fits the scene since seven sons bear the iniquity of their father. Their deaths lead to the satisfaction of the penalty. Typologically, of course, this is all a picture against Israel for the sin of Saul. But I think given that, the term sacrifice is still appropriate. In chapter 24, the sacrifice are burnt offerings to bring an end to the plague or pestilence. and, And notice that something or someone dies before the cure is removed in both scenes. Seven sons, burnt offerings, before the Lord... Here's the plea of the land. Once again, we're reminded something when we see the sacrifice. And that is, without the shedding of blood, there is not forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's not forgiveness of sins. It's clear in all the scriptures. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, "...for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls." For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. To say it a slightly different way, what is owed for sinning is your life. That that turns us back to Genesis 2, does it not? What does the Lord say in Genesis 2, 17? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Bible, this is repeatedly established. A death penalty, a death is the penalty that must be paid in order to reverse the curse. And not just the sacrificial system given to Israel at Sinai. We see this over and over again in other ways as we do here in our text. This motif, particularly in this book, has been especially heavy since the fall of David in chapter 11. And I think it's important to notice as we're picking up these piece's It's almost as though the author of Samuel, human or divine, is not just pointing to the need for a sacrifice. It seems he may be pointing to the need for the death of a son, specifically. The son of a covenant breaker. Maybe a son of Adam, without sin. And here we're reminded of the central lessons of the sacrificial system. I'm just going to read these through a few. If you're writing notes and you don't have a bulletin, these are printed in the bulletin. If you're writing notes, grab a bulletin and copy these. Leave room for it. Here are the central lessons of the sacrificial system. One, the wages of sin are death. Two, the wages must be paid. Three, the wages are actually transferable. That is, the Lord will accept a substitute. Praise God. Number four, the payment will remove the debt and reverse the curse. We see that over and over again. That, of course, is a whole nother sermon. But I'm trying to shorten 2 Samuel for you guys, okay? We see that over and over again. And in our passages, chapter 21 and 24. But finally, the last piece in both chapters, there is salvation. Sin, sentence, sacrifice, and salvation. Notice that both passages in chapter 21 and 24 end with a very similar line. If you turn to 2 Samuel 21, in verse 14, the end of that passage, that section, ends with this. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Chapter 24, at the end of the book of Samuel, the whole thing ends with, so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So in both cases, God responded specifically to the plea for the land, reversing the curse, removing the famine in chapter 21, and the plague and pestilence in chapter 24. This is a reminder, and those of us who are less familiar with the Old Testament are sometimes surprised to hear this, but you need to. It's a reminder that you are saved primarily from the wrath of God. You know that, right? We, we tend to use that term, I'm saved, as if I'm saved from hell, or I'm saved from the devil, or I'm saved from sin. No, primarily, if you're saved, you are saved from the wrath of God. You're not saved from the devil. The quintessential picture of salvation is being brought out from under the wrath of God. It is for this reason that Christ hung on a tree, that he might become a curse for us. That he might consume the wrath of God against us. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of this at length. Just add it to the reading. So here we are. We've traced out the flow from these two passages. We've seen their similarities. But I want to circle back now and look at each individually quickly, considering a big idea that's communicated through both. So starting in chapter 21, we saw the sin, the sentence, Uh, The sacrifice, the judgment against sin really serves at the occasion for this. Chapter 21, we see a reminder that the Lord has promised to save sinners. In chapter 21, that's what we see. A reminder that the Lord has promised to save sinners. There was a famine in the land. So David inquires of the Lord. Now, I know since we're reading this and we've been longing for that, right? We've been looking... David, you inquired of the Lord. Great job. How long did this famine last? Three years. What took the boy so long, right? Three years, and then he inquires of the Lord, and then it's it's not going to get that much better. So he seeks the Lord, presumably after three years. The Lord reveals that the famine's due to the unatoned blood guilt on the house of Saul. And so follow this now. David, after finally inquiring of the Lord... ...then inquires of the Gibeonites about what to do. That's worth pondering. David goes to the Gibeonites in order to determine how to make atonement... ...so that the Gibeonites may bless the heritage of the Lord. Is that right or wrong? Should should David have sought out the Gibeonites in order to know how to atone for the sin of Saul... I don't see here, maybe you do, a single inquiry or question about how the Lord would like this sin to be atoned for. Do you? In fact, the Lord's already told Israel how to atone for this sin, hasn't he? David, doesn't he know this? How to atone for blood guilt since he's the king? He's got a rewritten copy of the law of God and he reads it every day, right? That's what kings were charged to do. Wasn't this exactly why the sin offering was given according to Leviticus chapter 4? That says this in verse 22. When a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, his God, and anything which should not be done and is guilty. That's like the exact situation that David's in, right? He didn't know why this had come upon the land. Yet a ruler in Israel had sinned. The law says this in verse 23, Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. The Lord has given David away to make atonement. But David says, let me ask the Gibeonites, who barter then for seven sons. And David, I would argue foolishly, Gives the seven sons to be hung in their place. And then we read in verse 9, So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest. In the first days, and then there's this statement. When we're reading narrative, remember, it's not going to tell you these things. It's a narrative, but the author puts them there intentionally. This statement, In the beginning of barley harvest... Now, being a steward of God's word, your heart skips a beat there, right? Remembering the sermon I preached in like 2019 on the harvest. (laughs) Don't you get excited? There's hope. They were put to death on the first days of harvest, the barley harvest. Well, let's go back. You have to understand the significance of the barley harvest to understand why any of that's important. What does that mean? Again, this is something we just read over in the scriptures. But don't dwell upon it. Well, in a Gregorian society, harvest time was a joyous time. It also became an important part of Israel's calendar. So when the writer says it's the beginning of the barley harvest, we know it was roughly the end of March, beginning of April. The first month of the Jewish calendar. Which meant the barley harvest coincided with the Passover feast. It's worth pondering for a moment. It's actually probably the most important piece for our interpretation of this passage. See, if if you know David's history, the barley harvest has already played an important role in the origin story of King David, hasn't it? Think for just a moment at the very end of the book of Ruth, chapter 1. That's the origin story of David. You remember Naomi, don't you? She had a husband, two sons, just like Rizpah in chapter 21. She leaves Israel because of a famine in the land. So they go to Moab. Things don't go well for Naomi and Moab. She ends up losing her husband and two sons, just like Rizpah. But she comes back to the land, and one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, comes with her, a Moabite. She refuses to leave her, clings to Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Most of us are familiar with that, even if we don't know the story of Ruth. And they come back to the promised land at the very end of the chapter, and they come into Bethlehem when? At the beginning of the barley harvest. See, we're supposed to be thinking of the story of Ruth here and the story that concludes David's narrative. And by connecting us to the Ruth narrative, we're supposed to suspect that something good is about to take place. Yes, the seven sons, the death of seven sons has just taken place. But it took place at the time of the barley harvest. And then what we find next is a reminder of the Lord's promise. He has promised to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham. Insert sermon from last week, right? What do we see Rizpah doing? She's driving away the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. It's that picture of Abraham over the cut carcasses as the Lord's preparing to walk through them himself, making covenant with Abraham, promising to bless the nations through him. We recall it's also in Deuteronomy chapter 28 when part of the curse was theirs, no one to drive away the birds of the air or beasts of the fields. So our minds in seeing this mother as she mourns for her children driving away the birds of the air and beasts of the fields were brought back to that. We're reminded what the Lord has promised and that the promise of the Lord will prevail. So in the end David gathers to bone, the bones of the deceased and places them in a tomb removing them from the threat of the birds and the beasts into the safety and rest of a tomb. And then... The Lord answers the plea from the land. And we're reminded between the Lord and Abram, the covenant securing the promise of God to secure the nations through him and his seed. Rizpah drives away the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields, reminding us that the Lord who declares the end from the beginning has promised to bless us. Even if the Lord himself has to bear the iniquity of his covenant partner. And if you can believe it, it even gets better. As we turn to chapter 24... We find something even more important Chapter 24 We see this We find the Lord will provide a son To take away our sins The Lord will provide a son To take away our sins Now reading chapter 24 It might be difficult to kind of connect those dots But again as we move passage through the passage quickly Sin and sentence provide an occasion For this reminder of the blessing The Lord incited David against Israel Saying to number Israel and Judah David's heart is struck Then the sentence follows and it comes in the form of a choice. The Lord says, three years of famine, three months of foes, or three days of pestilence, David, you choose. Interestingly enough, David doesn't choose any. Instead, he chooses the Lord. He says in verse 14 of chapter 24, And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For His mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. In a sense, he really just said, not option A or C, just B. I'm sorry, option A or C, just not B. doesn't want the foes. So three days of pestilence is what he receives. And then we go from seven sons of Saul to 70,000 sons of Israel. And here's this picture in the narrative of the wrath of God coming and it's, it's reaching up to Jerusalem. David's at the head of the nation there and that's the scene. There's an angel bringing the pestilence. It's Israel striking down. Seventy thousand sons, fall due to the plague and then the hand reaches just toward Jerusalem and the Lord says that's enough. He says stay the hand. Now where have we seen that before? What does that remind us of? Well it's interesting to know where this event takes place. This event takes place on Mount Moriah. You want to know the significance of Mount Moriah? You want to know where Mount Moriah is? It's where Abraham took his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. Because the Lord commanded him to do so. Abraham, in obedience, he took his son up to the top of Mount Moriah. He built an altar. He placed his son upon it. Then it says that Abraham prepared to strike him with a knife. And the angel of the Lord says, in the English translation, it's do not lay your hand upon the boy. But in Hebrew, it's actually the same word here for this angel stretching out his hand against Jerusalem to destroy it. Stay your hand, the Lord says. Then Abraham looks over and he sees the ram in a bush. And so instead of offering his son, there's a substitute. The ram takes the son's place. His blood is shed instead of Isaac. And Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. This whole scene, it recalls to our minds that scene. We've got Rizpah driving the birds of the air and the beasts of the field away. And then we move to the counterpart of the other end of the chiasm. We have this picture of of this hand once again ready to deliver that final blow of judgment to the people of Israel. That will destroy Isaac. That will destroy Jerusalem. That will destroy David. And the Lord intervenes. Instead, David offers a sacrifice the Lord has provided. And all of a sudden... A lot of things seem to make sense. The overwhelming death of sons here at the end of 2 Samuel starts to make more sense to us. All of a sudden, the death of an unnamed innocent son who died instead of David in chapter 12 makes sense. All of a sudden, Absalom hanging from a tree so that David can return from exile starts to make more sense. The seven sons who die in chapter 21, they point us in the same direction. And before we get to the cross, David's rise and fall reminds us that we are still waiting on the one that the Lord will provide. And in the fullness of time, he would provide his own son, but he would not spare him. He would not stay the hand, but send him in the fullness of time to take on our flesh and blood that he might ascend to the Mount of Moriah and hang upon that cursed tree, becoming a curse for us. And that curse was poured out and quenched forever. So it turns out that from sin to salvation isn't just the flow of 2 Samuel 21 and 24. It's actually the story of the entire Bible. As we move toward closing, I want to quickly just offer this. It's one thing to think about these things in terms of their literary beauty. And I hope, I hope you've seen afresh the Scriptures in the way that, that this is a literary masterpiece the Lord has given us in the revelation of His Word. They're just incredible and beautiful the way the author, the divine author, tells the story. But here's what we have to remember we are recalling history. So, the God in whose presence we've met today is the exact same God who spoke with Abraham on Mount Moriah, declaring the end from the beginning, knowing that there was a day about a thousand years later when he would speak with David on that very same mount. And all of it, every bit of it, was decreed before the foundation of the world. That's our God. So, so when we think about His promise to provide, and you and I, in the midst of the craziness that is life, are longing for the fulfillment of that promise and the return of Christ, remember, He is no less active right here, right now, than He was back then. The world looks like it's fallen apart, doesn't it? I mean just crazy upon crazy upon crazy and yet as you watch it know that my father is behind it. No, there is nothing that is taking place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. So who shall we fear? What a God, right? What a salvation. Would you stand as we close in prayer this morning? Gracious Father, thank you for being so faithful to your promise throughout. Thank you for the ways in which your word strengthens our confidence as we come to know you more truly as your son is revealed on each and every page of your holy word. Lord, would you remind us that you are sovereign over all things. That your Son, this very minute, holds the entire cosmos together by the word of his power. So whom shall we fear? Help us, your people, to stand this week in grace and in mercy. Help us to abound in love. Help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and truth as we stand in awe of a God who will bring to completion that which you have began among us. We pray this